This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Film crews have been traveling across the U.S. to document this country's deep political divisions. They call the project Postcards from the Great Divide. And they made a stop in Colorado to highlight last year's school board recall vote in Jefferson County. The short film starts with a question, who would spend a million dollars on a school board election? Jeffco is just the latest example of our political dialogue becoming no dialogue at all. In a world where compromise is betrayal, elections become exercises in winner-take-all. Directors Louis Alvarez and Andrew Kolker join me from New York. They made the documentary for PBS and The Washington Post. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks. So before we dive into Jeffco, uh, Louis, what's the impetus behind digging into the political divide in this country? Well, you know, we hear a lot about how Americans are more divided politically than ever before. We're certainly seeing that at the presidential level this year. Um, But we've felt as people who've made documentaries over the years about politics that not enough is kind of understood about the sort of the nuts and bolts of why partisanship actually works for the parties. And so we wanted to do a series of stories that basically kind of swept the curtain aside for people who may not follow politics too closely and they could understand uh, why partisanship plays out the way it does. So briefly remind us then what led to the recall election in Jefferson County. Well, uh, in 2013, um, there was a sort of low turnout uh, election along with a bunch of other uh, statewide uh, school board elections. And uh, a conservative group uh, organized and uh, got a majority on the Jeffco school board. Uh, it was a little bit, we don't, I don't want to use the word stealth, but basically a lot of other people weren't paying attention. And uh, the new majority, it was a three to two majority, uh, became very uh, athletic in terms of pushing some of their new goals. And that's when people started to notice that um, uh, that some of the some of the uh, agenda was that was being pushed was not necessarily congruent with what people in Jeffco had been expecting. And so that, of course, led to uh, the recall election. Andrew, you're going to say something. Well, I was just going to say that uh, the the kind of straw that broke the camel's back was that, uh, that one of the one of the conservative the conservative school mem- school board members, Julie Williams, had uh, had suggested that the uh, AP history curriculum um, was not patriotic enough, um, and uh, kind of did, didn't mention the didn't mention the founding fathers in the way that she thought was would be appropriate, and so that kind of kind of just was the spark, I think, that uh, kind of set the fire in Jeffco and kind of awakened um, the sleeping giant, as it were. And the three school board members were successfully ousted in a landslide. Can, can you say precisely how much money was spent here in Jefferson County on that recall race? You know, I, I don't think anybody, <clears throat> excuse me, anybody really knows. Um, you're, you're talking here in, in probably in excess of uh, half a million dollars on both the pro and anti-recall sides. But, you know, it, it, that's just simply the, the, the amount of money that, had, that was actually reported um, there's there was plenty of money which is now called dark money, but money which where you essentially don't know where it comes from and you don't really know how much was spent. What was interesting about this is that there was uh, you know everybody had money in it one way or another. There was both grassroots money as well as national money, um, and because of this dark money situation, since the Citizens United decision that the Supreme Court basically said it's okay to basically have anonymous political contributions, this is kind of the new normal, and that's what we were trying to get at with this story. 
And as you said, your film highlights this influx of money uh, from the teachers union on the left and the Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity on the right. But you point out that both sides claim to be grassroots while accusing the others of having deep pockets. Uh, Take a listen to this clip. Well, we've heard that that, um, the anti-recall side side spent $500,000 on a TV buy. (laughs) That's not the case? As as the guy who did the TV buy. That's not the case. I wish it were the case. I wish I had a million dollars for our team so that we would be able to compete with that. But all we have are our volunteers, moms, dads, grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers, and the anti-recall side disputed that $500,000 figure, by the way. Uh, Andrew, what do you make of that scene? Well, this is just sort of uh, – that was one of the – the last person was one of the uh, the pro-recall folks who were essentially, essentially was saying, well, you know, we we were raising all of our money locally. Um, you know, a lot of you – know, and the, the next line in the narration is, but this wasn't a bake sale. You know, in fact, there were like lots there – was, there was money coming in from the unions on their side. There was, as you, as you pointed out, there was money from the Koch brothers, affiliates coming in on the other side. Um, but, you know, there, there was a very strong constituency on both sides from parents who were genuinely concerned and had differing views on, you know, how their, how their children should be educated. And that clip included John Caldera, who heads the Independence Institute, which opposes the re- opposed the recalls. And he's argued that being able to donate anonymously was pretty critical because educators who were against the recalls would have faced, uh, he says, quote, a very hostile environment if their colleagues had learned of it. So he argues the anonymity gave them more freedom. It, you know, what's interesting is that um, the Koch brothers, who are kind of the marquee dark money kings of America, uh, have a political agenda which they are happy to roll out nationally. For example, there was a, uh, a situation in Columbus, Ohio, where the local folks wanted to pass a, a, a sales tax increase to fund the zoo. And the Koch brothers got involved in that and defeated it. Okay, even though they don't particularly have a specific representation in Columbus, it's something that they they basically politically don't agree with. So what happens is that if you want to fight that kind of don't spend government money, don't raise taxes attitude, you need to come back with a, with guns big enough to fight the Koch brothers in this in this case. The teachers unions are one of the organizations in the United States that have the the firepower to fight. To, to, to take on the Cokes. And so that's why this was the million-dollar school board, because you had these two very well-matched adversaries. And, Louis, you say in the film that the Jeffco race was how, quote, national groups exploit local conflicts to push their agendas and advance their agendas. Is it fair to call it exploitation? Wouldn't groups welcome that extra push? Well, it's complicated. The problem is, is that what we don't want to suggest is that somehow everything was peachy, peachy keen before dark money got involved. But the point is, is that to spend a million dollars on a school board race in a, in a suburban county is just kind of overkill. And uh, uh, the, the thing is, is that people do bring, especially in education, they do bring different agendas to bear. But if people are pouring money in from distant, you know, distant, distant states to affect your school district, it does, it does, it is a problem. And both sides of the recall vote talk about that influence there, about the vitriol they saw leading up to the election in in your film. Here's another clip of that. At times I've been bullied on social media. People that don't know me have called me names and uh, called me a Koch brother minion. I've had bricks thrown at the house. Um, I've had threatening emails. I've had threatening phone calls. I've had growling phone calls. This is the way national divisions play out on a local level. Be ruthless. We want to make sure these people actually support us. 
Outside money pours in, everyone retreats to their ideological corners, and there's no one left in the center. There's no one left in the center. Uh, you interview Colorado politicals on left and right who agree with that assessment, by the way. And yet Jeffco seems a strange place for that to be true because it's a third Democrat, a third Republican, and a third independent. Sh- should be pretty even keel, right? What do you think about that? Well, that's what's so interesting is that is that a lot of people feel like, why can't we all just get along? Why can't the moderates sort of dominate things? And what we've discovered in talking to politicians over the years is that's, no, the moderates can't. What it is is about throwing red meat to your base, and you basically force people into these hardening positions. And that's what happened in Jeffco. People who normally were neighbors, they might be moms together at, you know, at Little League, uh, stopped talking to each other because they were kind of forced into taking these absolutist positions, either pro uh, Koch brothers or pro teachers unions. Yeah, you know, it's also a question of who votes. You know, I, I think even in the recall election, with all of the publicity, with all of the money, with all of the attention ginned up, uh, I think you still had less than 40 percent mm-hmm. um, of a vote. And that's the same kind of thing on, uh, you know, on a presidential level. So, you know, a- again, it, it becomes a question of who are who are the partisans? Who are the people who really care about this? And so, anyone who's interested in a particular issue or pushing a particular agenda is going to going to move towards those folks who who support them. I mean, it's 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 kind of a self perpetuating kind of thing. So, yeah, of course, the middle is going to sort of somewhat disappear because those folks are generally not involved. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm chatting with filmmakers Louis Alvarez and Andrew Kulker about their film Million Dollar School Board. It's part of a series called Postcards from the Great Divide in conjunction with PBS and The Washington Post. There are five short films so far set here and in Minnesota, Texas, Florida, and Wisconsin. Uh, One deals with a man straddling this political divide between the politics of his rural hometown and his current home in Minneapolis. Uh, Another follows a Latino candidate for city council in Pasadena, Texas. Uh, How would you say this film in Colorado fits in? It it seems less character-driven to me. Yeah, this was the first one that we did, and we actually wanted to stake out this position about this is how partisanship works in America in 2016. So it actually was a pretty good example of how people are forced into their their corners and uh, people who are trying to win at the polls are trying to appeal to their base. That's something that applies across the board uh, in America, and we're certainly going to see that in the presidential election as well as uh, statehouse elections. So for us, it was a little bit of a sort of a a, a prelude to the rest of the to the rest of the stories. Uh, by the way, I just wanted to put a plug in that all all these can be seen at politicalpostcards.org, um, and they're, they're going to be up, and they will be joined by four more pieces. And those four more pieces, they're they're going to be about eight to twelve minutes in length, uh, from what it, what the the other ones have been. Uh, does does the length of these films give their subjects justice? I mean, how can you break the current political landscape across the country into these little snippets? Well, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. I mean, the Jeffco story is a very complicated story, um, actually, and I think we could very easily have done a half an hour, <coughs> excuse me, a half an hour piece on it. Um, you know, there, it had many tentacles. It had many sides. It had many different sort of points of view. Um, when you're doing these kinds of stories, you know, you tend to look for characters. You tend to look for people who can kind of express almost almost metaphorically the the kinds the, the the issues involved the situations involved and do it in a kind of entertaining as well as informative way 
Um, Jeffco was a bit of an anomaly because it was kind of a, a bit more reportage. Mm -hmm. um, it had kind of multiple characters as opposed to one or two. The other pieces tend to sort of be much more character-based. I think this is a question that, that, that people are asking themselves. Is the country past this point of no return? Are, are these kinds of partisan fights uh, uh, that played out here in Colorado, are they here to stay across the country? Well, it's a good, it's a good question. And, and, you know, frankly, if I'm in a good mood, I'll say, you know what, the, the republic will survive as it always has. And on a bad day, I'll go, I don't know. Um, I think part of it has to do with those of us who follow politics on a, on a really close basis uh, can get very demoralized very quickly. But most people aren't really focusing on – they're focusing on getting to work. They're focusing on getting through their commute. And then maybe a week before the election, they're actually going to sit down and, and, and pay attention. You still think um, that's the case I even today? You think that's still the case? That, yes, that, actually, that, I do. Yeah. I think I, th I think that there's there's certain people like it's what you know the expression low information voter, and I'm mm. not saying that to be pejorative. It's just there's people who know a couple things. Uh, frankly, uh, they will decide if they're supporting a candidate, and they're and no matter what you throw at them, they're probably going to continue to support that candidate. We certainly saw that in the Democratic primary, where the folks who supported Hillary really weren't going to get budged by the Bernie folks, and vice versa. Um, and uh, you know, so see, you see it playing out in your Facebook feed probably every day. Um, so I just think it's one of those things where eventually maybe there'll be a shift in politics. Hopefully it'll be a shift for the better. But um, it's always a it's always a grubby business. It's complicated, and uh, and we do believe that all this money is not a good thing. That that is in fact perverting the system. Did anything either of you saw here in Colorado give you hope? <laughs> a long a pause. pause. There's a pause on there. On the radio. Right? We, 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 don't, <laughs> now, we don't like long no, pauses on radio, do well, we? Well, no. What, what, was, what was good was that it was great to see people involved. People involved. And, yeah, that's right. And education, of course, is one of those things where it's incredibly important. If you have a family or simply if you live in a community, education is probably the number one thing. And so the fact that people were very passionate both on both sides was, uh, was really important. It's too bad because you really do want a case where some things that the conservative reformers were proposing were – were worthy of adoption, and some of the some things that the, that the union was was defending was also worthy of adoption. And if you could kind of mix them together uh, without all the ideology attached to it, you might have actually a better shot at improving your school system. Thanks, you both, for joining us. Sure, thank you. Thank you. Louis Alvarez and Andrew Kolker co-created the series Postcards from the Great Divide, which includes their film Million Dollar School Board. You can watch online. There's a link at cprnews.org. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Rockies start the second half of the Major League Baseball season today. That means fans have another three months to eat all the hot dogs, peanuts, and Cracker Jacks they want at Coors Field. But not all the food that's prepared for games gets eaten. This year, for the first time, a nonprofit called We Don't Waste is taking advantage of the leftover food. CPR's Andrew Dukakis met the group at its headquarters in Denver's Rhino neighborhood. After the Rockies' recent three-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays, the We Don't Waste crew prepared for a pickup. So we have three trucks. We have a big one that can take very large loads of food, pallets of food. 
Tim Sanford is the director of operations. That means he keeps the trains, actually the trucks, running. Like on this sunny Thursday morning. We have a small refrigerated truck, 10 foot. It's very well suited. We Don't Waste picks up excess food from sports arenas, the convention center, and other large venues around Denver and Boulder. They take food that was prepared or is about to expire, nothing that was served to a customer. This morning, when Sanford opens the truck, it smells a lot like ripened fruit, which the team picked up from a different venue the day before. We have a pallet of bananas and a pallet of uh, all-natural juice. That's about a ton of bananas, Sanford estimates, which he said would have otherwise gone into the landfill by the airport. It's perfectly edible, good food. Sanford climbs into the truck and heads for the baseball park. He says the food we don't waste collects ends up in cities across the Front Range and as far away as South Dakota. Working with the Lakota tribe up in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, they don't have enough food for their residents up there. Sanford stops at the security gate at Coors Field, then drives up to the receiving docks. We meet up with We Don't Waste founder and executive director Arlen Preblood and head inside. This hallway is a long hallway. On each side are large walk-ins that store everything from the bread to beer to uh, soft drinks. I mean, if I open this, this cooler right here, they've got strawberries, they've got pastry. There's actually Jose Cuervo tequila in here. We Don't Waste won't take the Jose Cuervo, but they do wheel out a nearly six-foot-tall cart. It's filled with dozens of aluminum pans. They're wrapped tightly, so the contents don't spoil. Together, they add up to nearly 1,500 servings of food. We're going to uh, cut open the brown wrap here. Holds all the food together so it doesn't fall. The team loads them into the truck and finds out what's inside. Asparagus and pot roast. French fries. Cauliflower. Barbecue chicken. Not your typical ballpark cuisine. Sanford says this food is from the luxury suites at Coors, where VIPs eat. Aramark runs concessions at Coors and formed the partnership with We Don't Waste. Before that, this leftover food would have been thrown in the trash, says Brian Arp. He's general manager of Coors Field for Aramark. We love the program. We've been trying for years to figure out a partnership that works. It's great to have finally a success. ARP says it's most valuable when rain causes games to start late, which often means fans go home early or don't show up at all. Fewer fans means more excess food. With the truck loaded, I head outside with Executive Director Arlen Preblood. Is there anything you won't take from the ballpark? Sure, we look for obviously high nutritious value product, and that includes protein, that includes vegetables, fruit. There are items that we don't take, such as popcorn. Do you take hot dogs from the place? Certainly, we do take hot dogs. One item that we don't take is is bread, because there, quite frankly, there's an overabundance of bread in the city, and rather than waste it, they have an outlet that they can take that bread and compost it or feed it to uh, farm animals. If you're delivering something like hot dogs, how do you repurpose them? They don't have the buns. Sometimes we'll make suggestions to the people that are cooking at facilities. If we delivered a number of hot dogs and they don't have any buns, you can put them into chili. You can chop them up. 
okay? You can serve them as snacks with toothpicks. And the fact of the matter is, it's good protein. How do you know that the organizations that you're donating to actually use the food and don't allow it to go to waste? When we deliver food, my staff generally looks around to make sure that the product that we've been delivering is being used. And if it's not, then we'll ask them. We delivered product to you last week, and it's still sitting in your refrigeration. You haven't used it. Is there some reason? Was the food bad? And generally the answer is we forgot about it. And if there's a situation where they're not utilizing the food, then we'll back away for a while until they catch up, until they realize that they have to use the product that we're delivering. The other aspect of that is that we try our best to find the best use of the products that we have so that we don't confront them with situations where they have to waste that food. What did these organizations do before they had an opportunity to get your food? So I can give you a perfect example. I received a letter in June from a small agency that's located in Federal Heights. And the letter, and I'll paraphrase it, said that when we were generally open, we would serve about 100 families a week. You began delivering to us fresh produce, fresh dairy, and prepared products. We went from 100 families a week to now 500 families a week. Before, they either had to close their doors because they didn't have food. If their budgets allow, they may have to go on to the open market and purchase product. And what are they buying? They're buying what their dollar will stretch best to get. Having done this for a while now, I wonder if you go to events and are preoccupied with food waste there. Do you notice it and does it disturb you? Food waste always disturbs me, whether it's at home or when you go to an event and you see the products being left on the table or servings are too large for the people that are there. And I think it's a question of making the community aware that there's a major issue in this country where 40% of all the products that we produce go to waste. It gets wasted at the distribution. It, it even gets wasted at the farm because we have these artificial measurements of how carrots are supposed to look and how a tomato is supposed to look. And then it goes to the distributor who makes a determination of who can use this. Then when it gets on the shelves of the stores, okay, people make a decision of how much they're going to buy, but they don't always use everything they buy. I do know that some farms donate food that they don't sell, uh, produce that they don't sell, but I guess not all of them do that. Many do, and we'd like to begin to address that with the farmers. It seems to me that in the Depression era, there was a lot of awareness about food waste, and people were very careful. And then there was perhaps a period where people didn't think about it. And now we've sort of gone back to that old way of being concerned about all of the food that we consume and waste. Well, you're right. We've become a nation of abundance. And when you become abundant, you sometimes forget how to conserve your assets and we overspend in many different ways, including with food. In the seven years that I've been involved in this, I've seen the awareness of food waste and food insecurity begin to boil up to a point where people are taking more notice of what food waste is all about. 
Is there anything individuals can do if they come to the ballpark to prevent food waste? So when you come to the ballpark, okay, you should eat what you get. And it's a balancing act because if you only eat what you get, then the providers of that food would only produce what they need. But it's like any good operation. The last thing this ballpark, Coors Field, wants to have happen is people walk up to a concession stand and say, we're out of food. So they, they have to absolutely produce more than is expected. We benefit from that. In this case, homeless youth will benefit from the food from Coors Field this week. After we pick it up, I take a ride to Sox Place, a day shelter about a mile from the ballpark. As the We Don't Waste crew unloads the pans, I talked with Doyle Robinson. He co-founded Sox Place and serves as executive director. We provide a place for street kids, homeless runaways. And where would these... Uh, kids normally eat if they're not eating here? They're begging for it on the, on the 16th Street Mall. Uh, you know, you come out of a restaurant and they're asking you for your leftovers. What did you do for food before you got it from here? We used to serve hamburger helper that we'd get from a uh, food bank without a hamburger. There's no money exchange with recipients or food donors. We Don't Waste operates solely off of philanthropic contributions. The group is small, just six employees, but it's the only organization operating at this scale in Colorado. Preblood says they've saved and distributed nearly 11 million servings this year. He hopes to eventually have a warehouse to store food overnight. That, he says, would help the operation get more food to more people. CPR's Andrew Dukakis reported that story with producer Rachel Estabrook. Up next, a Colorado company wants to bring back supersonic air travel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's been 13 years since the supersonic Concorde touched down for the last time. And down she comes. Uh, lovely. Puff of smoke. That was live BBC coverage of the event from London's Heathrow Airport. The Concorde won fans with its slick style and speed. It could get you from New York to London less than half the time of a conventional airliner, but it was a bit of a white elephant. Round trips cost $20,000, and still the plane never turned a profit. Now, a Colorado company wants to revive the dream of supersonic passenger flight. Centennial startup Boom Technology has a deal with Virgin Groups for 10 jets. Blake Scholl is Boom's founder and CEO. I spoke to him earlier this year. Welcome to the program. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. What makes you think you can succeed where the Concorde failed? Well, Concorde was designed 50 years ago with slide rules. And you know, like you said, the problem was not that it didn't work technologically. The problem was the prices were too high for people to afford. And the problem was fuel economy behind that. It was a gas guzzler. And today we've got improved aerodynamics, better engines, lighter materials, and you can build a supersonic aircraft that's way more affordable. And what about fuel economy? I, I've heard that there could be a 30% improvement in fuel economy with your with your jet. Yeah, actually a little bit more than 30%. And that lets you get prices down from $20,000 to about the same price as a ticket in business class. Here's the thing. Your jets will only have 40 seats. Is that correct? That's right, yes. So how does that balance with passenger space shrinking currently in favor of adding more seats and paying customers on traditional jets? 
Uh, well, you want to build a great passenger experience. So this is this is targeted at initially. So let me back up. Our yeah. long-term vision is to make supersonic travel available for everybody. Got it. You know, think anywhere in the world in five hours for a hundred bucks. That's a decades-long mission, and we're starting with the simplest product that we can get to market quickly. And still, uh, still find a large number of customers, and so it's targeted at business travelers. It hits the same price points as tickets in business class, and at forty seats, unlike Concorde with a hundred, it's actually viable on many routes, and not just New York to London, but San Francisco to Tokyo, and Washington to Paris, and uh, here to Shanghai. So a Concorde ticket was about twenty thousand dollars. What would a seat? on your future plane go for in the beginning? In the beginning, about $5,000 round trip New York to London. And so is that is that comparable to a first class it's, it's like It's like business class. I, actually, if you go and you look for ticket prices today, you'll probably find it's a bit more than that in business class. And you said eventually you want the ticket to go lower than $5,000. That's right. This sounds a lot like the business model for Tesla. Uh, that electric car company starts with a very high-end electric car, and eventually something, of course, more affordable comes comes along. But in that case, there's a clear environmental benefit uh, with electric vehicles. What good comes from faster than sound travel? Well, it uh, makes Earth more accessible. Uh, it, it helps to look back in history. It's been 50 years since we last had a speed up in air travel. And I don't know if you're a, a Broncos fan, but before the jet age, there was actually no major league sports west of the Mississippi. Hmm. And the reason was it was just uh, the overhead of traveling was was too much to spread teams out. And so we have, you know, we have sports all across the country now thanks to the jet age. And with the supersonic age, which I believe is coming and it's coming quickly, is going to enable global sports leagues. It's not just going to let you get to the world more easily. It's going to bring the best of the world to you. Of course, we aren't in the jet setting 60s. We know there's climate change. We have the internet to maintain relationships via long distances. Is the dream of super rapid travel outdated in 2016 overall? No, I don't think so. I mean, we, we don't tolerate 1960 speeds on our phones and we shouldn't tolerate the same on our airplanes. To address the question directly, yeah. uh, fuel economy and emissions go hand in hand. And like we said earlier, the big driver of Concorde's ultra high prices was the fuel economy was horrible. So when you make progress in fuel economy, you make progress on prices, you make progress on emissions. And a, a lay flat bed on business class today will have the same sort of fuel economy footprint as a seat on our airplane. And it does seem that people want this type of technology. Virgin, as we said, would like the first 10. An unnamed European carrier wants another 15. Uh, when would your company be delivering these supersonic jets? Well, we're working right now on our prototype, which is a sort of one-third scale uh, technology demonstrator, proves that the design really works. Uh, we're building that now, and it's going to fly end of next year. What about the sonic boom? Of course, I've heard that was an issue with Concorde, over, flying over areas. Uh, I know that was a huge concern. C can that be eliminated with your jet? Uh, it could be significantly missed. Mitigated. Uh, so our airplane will be out 100 times quieter than Concorde was. So still audible, uh, but much less, uh, much less disruptive. And our offices are less than a mile from, from your offices there. We're not going to have shattered windows when this jet flies over? <laughs> not at all, no. That, that's, that's mostly a myth. It's really hard to break windows with a sonic boom. Why did you start your company here in Colorado? Well, we looked everywhere in the country to find the best home for uh, a supersonic aircraft startup. And Centennial has a long test runway. It's got reasonably affordable real estate. But more importantly, the quality of living here is great. And to, to make something like this happen, you need to attract the best people from all around the world. And there's no better place than Colorado to do that.
And, and so moving to Colorado, you, you, you have offices here now. Are you building the, the plane as we speak or, or how long is that? Yes. Well, so it's about an 18-month process from start of like serious construction to first flight. So we're going to go in full-scale construction mode later this year. If you walked into our hangar today, you'd kind of find test parts. You'd find the engine. Our engine will be up and running here just in a few days. And do you plan to build these planes here? Is that correct? We'd love to, yes. And so what does the ramp-up look like? Are you going to have uh, you know, 17, 18 planes being built at one time? It just seems so uh, uh, far from now, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, well, being fans of speed, we're doing this as quickly as you can. So like I said, the prototype will fly end of next year. After that, there's a more involved process of safety testing and regulatory approvals, and you don't want to skip those steps. So it'll be a few years before the first production aircraft start showing up. But after that, we're going to ramp it as quickly as we can. Now, you're not an aerospace engineer. You, you don't know how to, how to build a plane. So, so what makes you think that you could do something like this and, and build a supersonic jet? Well, I think most people underestimate how much they can learn when they're motivated and when they have a good idea of what clear understanding looks like. So this, is, this has been a passion of mine for years. I'm a pilot. I never got to fly on Concorde. And because you, you essentially had the opportunity to go and you didn't? I was, I was too young and I couldn't afford $20,000 for a joyride. And so is this kind of a, a revenge to the, to, the, to the aerospace gods saying, you know, what am I doing here? Well, I mean, I, if you look at the first 50 years of aviation from the Wright brothers forward, we literally had exponential progress in air travel. Uh, speeds were doubling or tripling about every 20 years, and that continued through the 1960s. So you know, today we think about you know, exponential progress as being confined to computers. It used to happen with airplanes. And we've had, we've had 50 years of no progress and making the world more accessible. And uh, our motivation is to, to pick that back up where it was left off and, and start pushing, pushing travel forward. We, of course, have uh, uh, maglev technology for high-speed railroads. We have things like that. There's a lot of perception that that's just way too expensive to, to build out. And I have to keep getting back to this question. Are we past this? Is this just going to be for maybe the elites that, that can spend $5,000, $10,000 on, on supersonic travel or, for example, high-speed travel? Yeah, there, I don't think there's any reason why you can't make it very broadly affordable. Um, when you when you go faster, uh, the challenge is fuel economy. But then there's what I think of as a speed dividend. You need less crew time, uh, less rent on the airplane. The same airplane can do more flights in the same period of time. All of that contributes to improved economy and greater affordability. And so I, I could also assume you could turn the planes quicker in terms of because they're going faster. Exactly. Uh, Let's say all of this goes according to plan and you get a production schedule. Um, when could we start seeing the actual planes in the air? Mm -hmm. uh, not too far away, but we, ha we haven't announced the exact schedule yet. We'll, we'll do that after we fly our prototype. And the prototype can be seen uh, now or when you're getting it done at the Centennial Airport? Absolutely. As a CEO, are you looking to other – uh, uh, visionaries like this that that are building these these type of products uh, across the country. Yeah, I, I think you know just in the last few years, it's been really inspiring to see what Elon Musk has accomplished at SpaceX and Tesla, what Bezos has accomplished at Blue Origin, and now some of the companies working on Hyperloop. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Blake Scholl is the CEO and founder of Boom Technologies in Centennial, Colorado. I spoke to him earlier this year. He says they'll be testing a prototype as soon as next year. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 
kid detective stories can be exhilarating for young readers, imagining themselves in the very adult position of solving crimes. Denver author Adam Lipsius taps into that with his new book, Knox Chase on the Case. He's a filmmaker by day, and the production company he co-owns will adapt the novel. Lipsius sat down with CPR's Ryan Warner, but it wasn't just the two of them in the studio. We thought it would be fun and enlightening to read this book with a young person. And so my co-host will be 8th grader Aritra Nag. Nag was a finalist in the Storymakers Writing Contest from Rocky Mountain PBS. And a welcome to you both. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. I just wonder if you have been in this position before, Adam, of, of just being able to ask Aritra... Did you like the book? I really liked the book a lot. It was very interesting for me to read. (laughs) That is a load off because when I heard that I was going to be, I don't want to say cross-examined, but uh, interrogated by two (laughs) questioners, I was terrified. So, Aritra, thank you. Glad you liked it. Aritra, is there a, a question you're dying to ask Adam? I guess to start, it was what inspired you to write this book? I have always loved Pulp Fiction film noir. Raymond Chandler's stories, Philip Marlowe, like picture Humphrey Bogart in your head. That's been forever the thing that has gotten me going. Now, Aritra, are you familiar with this concept of Pulp Fiction? Uh, Not really. Okay, explain that, would you, Adam? So Pulp Fiction, literally books that were so sort of dripping wet with mystery and cheap adventure that they were made out of pulp. It was like these paperback stories with, you know, gritty bars and seedy dames. And I, I for some reason, that has always intrigued me. And yet it doesn't sound like the fodder for children's or young adult <laughs> literature, does it? Well, I have two kids. I'm a terrible parent. So, yeah, I'm probably a terrible influence for <laughs> young readers everywhere. But I felt like there was a story you could distill out of those types of characters and the maybe more constrained world of kids today, mm-hmm. I think maybe there's there's a little bit of adventure and self-discovery that's missing for kids now that was present when I was a kid or, you know, probably even more present in the 40s and 50s. Aritra, do you feel like you could use more adventure in your life? I think so, yes. Uh-huh. You can't drive quite yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, more adventure is coming, I promise. Mm-hmm. And Adam, I understand that the inspiration for this story also came from an experience you had back in sixth grade. Yeah. One of my first forays into love was motivated by this note I wrote a girl I was in sixth grade with. You know, I don't know if it was a love note, but it was definitely a very heady, strong, like note, you know, asking her if she'd go out with me, whatever. And I handed her the note. And the first thing that happened was she showed it to another girl and then another girl. And they sort of clustered around this desk. And I still remember there was this half height wall in the classroom. And I sort of remember trying to slink out. Like, I just wanted to sort of slink out and hide behind this wall, and it was not tall enough to conceal me. And they were all – I don't think they were being mean about it, but they were giggling. And I – honestly, if an asteroid had hit the planet at just that instant, I think I would have been grateful. And your main character is 12-year-old Casey Green. He writes a Valentine's Day poem to his crush. Yes. And on his way to school, Casey bumps into a hooded stranger who's carrying a large envelope. Casey doesn't know, but the letters get switched. And what he delivers to his potential Valentine ends up being a threatening note. So this is where the mystery begins. Um, Aritra, will you read what the note says? Give me the piggy and no one gets hurt. So who wrote this letter and what they want are both mysteries here. But uh, Casey doesn't solve this alone. He has help from Knox 
Chase, this noir-esque, pulpy <laughs> detective. Um, will you read a bit from the book, uh, Adam? This is sort of an explanation of the in-between space that Knox Chase occupies. Black and white and gray like granite. He was both there and not there at the same time. Illuminated somehow. He seemed to pop and brighten and sputter, but there was no movie projector playing anywhere. It was like he'd walked off the set of his last film and into the present day in search of a new script to play. This was no ordinary person. It was Knox Chase, the hero of hundreds of unsolvable mysteries, and he fidgeted, impatient to get back on the case. So is he uh, like an imaginary friend? I think he's real. I know everybody who reads this thinks he's an imaginary friend, and I get that and I respect that. And they're probably right because there are more of them than there are of me. But to me, he's real. He is this visitation. He's maybe he's a guardian angel. Maybe Mm. he's the personification of everything this kid wants to be. Maybe he's the personification of everything this kid doesn't want to be. But he is a force and a presence to be reckoned with in this story. Aricha, what did you think of Knox Chase? Well, at first I thought he was an imaginary friend that only he could see. And then I saw that he always gave advice to Casey and he helped him with whatever he needed. More like what you thought he was maybe like a guardian angel or something. Right on. What helped you to create the characters? You know, friends of mine throughout my life, they're either entirely these characters or tiny pieces, but I could always hear somebody's voice whenever Kat was saying something or Benji um, or KC for that matter. I don't think KC is necessarily me, but yeah, I see other people who have touched me in my life and who have impacted the way I see the world in these characters. So should Aritra be worried that he's going to show up in a future book? <laughs> it's, it's eminently possible. Yeah. Ryan, you too I see. Could, be, could be fodder for a new story. I mean, the town where this takes place, Cornelia, um, is almost another character in the novel. What did you think of this place, Aritra? The setting helps to kind of back the story up because there's like suspicious streets that some places happen and then the museum with the piggy. And so I think it's a really good setting for this story. Is place character, Adam? Yeah. Place for me, the town of Cornelia in my dreams is Telluride, Colorado, actually, a place we get to go every year at Labor Day. We go for the Telluride Film Festival. And um, it's this magical town in this box canyon. It's impossibly isolated and spectacularly beautiful. And it's got this storied history that I don't think everybody appreciates. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, we've read the book Knox Chase on the Case of the Valentine's Day Mystery with Denver author Adam Lipsius. And when I say we've read, I mean myself and... Joining us as well as my co-host in this conversation is Aritra Nag, who was a finalist in the Storymakers Writing Contest from Rocky Mountain PBS. He's helping us understand this piece of literature. So, did you like solving mysteries when you were a kid? <laughs> I, think, I think I liked uh, causing mysteries when I was a kid. <laughs> I think I got into trouble for a couple of those uh, along the way. Yeah. In fact, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I was always intrigued by where school lunches came from. And so I did actually do a little digging. I found, you know, the manifest of the uh, 
of the delivery guys, and I discovered that we got our school lunches in Montgomery County, Maryland, just after the county prison got their school lunches. And I think I may have caused a mild controversy sensation because, you know, the the way it got disseminated around the school was we didn't – the food that we got wasn't even good enough for the jail. So uh, <laughs> you, you were just eating the jail's cast-offs. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Aritra, what, what is your relationship with mysteries? Personally, I don't really solve mysteries. <laughs> I just really like to read the books because it, it provokes thoughts in your head. You have to think about certain things. A mystery book really isn't about just reading it and then finding the solution at the end. You have to actually like try to solve the mystery in your mind and see if you're correct at the end. And so, Adam, when you're writing a mystery, do you know the answer to it when you begin? So I think the hardest thing to write in a book is the ending. And you you need to work that out. It, I mean, it took me eight years to really nail the ending for this for this book. But I, in all fairness, once I had that that kernel of what it was going to look like at the end, I was able to sort of construct everything to that. I did have to work backwards. You know, I, I'm benefited in this by the fact that you know, mysteries have their tropes. They've got their conventions. So you know – you know the elements that you've got to insert. You know how you've got to work through it. There have got to be twists and turns. You've got to have characters who absolutely have to have done it but didn't. And mm. you want to you wanna build that into your story. And um, you want to make it a game. How do you plan to adapt the book to the big screen? Yeah, because you are wanting to turn this into a film. So I get to direct movies, produce movies, write movies. So I have a vision for taking this story and turning it into a literal adaptation that is the same exact characters doing the same exact things. And I'm tempted to not do that. I'm tempted to maybe write a new adventure that is a Knox Chase focused more adult story. And I'm giving myself another two to four weeks to figure out if it's going to be the kid-focused Knox Chase or the grown-up-focused Knox Chase. But either way, we're making a Knox Chase movie. What's your vote, Aritra? I like the kids-focused story because, um, I mean, it was really interesting to me to read. And it showed me that kids can take it to the big level of solving crimes. Yeah, what do you think of KC before we go, the, the main character? Has Adam written a kid well? I think Adam has written a kid very well because kids have a lot of curiosity. So in a lot of stories, the kids don't really do much. But in this story, he's actually getting up and solving a crime. And he has problems with his love life and his best friend who is telling him that he's crazy, essentially. And he's kind of made fun of for his, you know, some would say delusions. Others would say his, you know, real life vision. It was really important to me that this kid be an actual kid confronting actual problems. I think kids are so much smarter than adults. I mean, I have two kids. They're considerably smarter than I am. I mean, they're, luckily, they're getting dumber and dumber each day that goes by. So one of these days, we might be on par. But um, yeah, they're capable of anything. Kids can do anything. And the notion that they should be sort of, I don't know, wrapped in bubble wrap and sort of rolled through life, like the John Travolta boy in the bubble movie, it just it drives me nuts. I think they can do more. And I wanted his adventures, Casey's problems, 
you know, there's stuff with his parents and, and how that's going to affect him. And, and, and they're real bullies in this story. Um, I had real bullies growing up. You know, you could you could run from them. You could stand up to them. Sometimes you'd stand up to them and then run quickly. Um, sometimes it would work out. Sometimes it didn't. But you always had to figure it out. Oh, Richard, do you want to make a career of writing? Yeah, that's one thing I'm considering. I'm also uh, interested in math and science, so I could be headed in that direction. As oh well. my gosh, you're the kid who can who like loves reading and math and science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's really nice to talk to both of you, and thanks for being my co-host. Thanks. Thank you so much. Denver author and filmmaker Adam Lipsius. His book is Knox Chase on the Case of the Valentine's Day Mystery. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner and Warner's guest host, Fort Collins 8th grader Aritra Nag, a finalist in the Rocky Mountain PBS Storymakers Writing Contest. Lipsius will be at the Tattered Cover on Colfax in Denver Monday night. And that's our show. Thanks to my audio engineer, Kara Schiff, my director, Stephanie Wolf, and producers, Andrea Dukakis, Sam Brash, and Rachel Estabrook. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.